I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. The old American is bound to do wonders yet. At the end of November 1845, nearing both the end of General Tom Thumb's tour of France and the close of his second year abroad, P.T. Barnum's wide-ranging ambitions seemed tamped down a bit, at least insofar as his communication to his American museum manager, Fortis Hitchcock, tells us. While it can probably never be said that Barnum was content with things as they stood in business matters, he seemed at this time to be relatively so concerning the museum, and was anxious to pull back from the speculations he had suggested to Hitchcock in previous letters. Perhaps this was due to his homesickness and ambiguous state of health, as well as the uncertainty of making another large pile of tin for a second time in England. Even in Paris, going before King Louis-Philippe had only gained them lots of glory, but we don't make any money, as he admitted to Hitchcock. Alternatively, perhaps Barnum was now so confident that the museum was flourishing under Hitchcock's meticulous management with support from the capable Professor Swift and Monsieur Guillaudot, he thought better of risking money in other ventures. That is, for the time being. Though Barnum had repeatedly given Hitchcock the go-ahead to make major purchases, and even investments in stock, 
He also never sounded entirely committed to any one or another of his proposed ideas, leaving Hitchcock to interpret the do-as-you-think-best instruction. But Barnum's November 29th letter to his trusted manager now informed him of a more certain view on such matters. As for seamen and any other showman or show business, I have one more general order to give. That is to say, if you have not already bought his museum, do not buy it nor any other, for the following reasons. First, money will always buy curiosities when we want them. And second, my health is such that I do not wish to engage in any more business at present, nor to have any more business upon my mind than I now have. If you have already bought, never mind, we'll do the best we can. But if you have not, it's better that at present I stick to the old American solely. If I hereafter return home safe and recover my health fully, it will then be time enough to engage other museums. As for the Philadelphia Museum, if I had it now, it would bother my soul out, and I guess, if I want, I can buy it hereafter. Even the idea of preparing a museum booklet no longer had the same luster, for Barnum advised, Never mind about the guidebook or catalog, unless you think that they or it can be made to pay. It will be time enough for it or them when I get home. Another factor that likely influenced Barnum's feelings at the time was news he had recently received from his uncle Allenson Taylor, which caused him to reflect on the many risks of show business. Though managing to keep his cloth trade afloat, Taylor was not successful in acquiring a half-interest in Rubens Peel's Baltimore Museum, which he had attempted on his own even while Barnum was thinking about purchasing the museum outright for his uncle. Barnum was quite relieved by the news, and replied in his letter of November 24th, "...that I am not very sorry that you have failed in it, for I could never have felt reconciled to your having that scamp of appeal for a partner." I only hope that you are safely back in your mercantile business again, and that you will have patience to continue in it till something really more successful offers. The letter suggests that Taylor, having lost in his pursuit of the Baltimore opportunity, had subsequently thought about opening a museum in Providence, Rhode Island. Concerning that gamble, Barnum expressed a quite definite opinion. I cannot forget that even $1,500 which you think your present business will realize per year, is by no means a bad business, that it is much better than the average of mankind are earning, and that it is infinitely better than to risk capital in a very uncertain enterprise, which I think opening a museum at Providence would be. I would not take a museum in Providence as a gift and be compelled to provide amusement for the public for five years. The show business is the best in the world when successful, but when a bad location, a want of spirit in the inhabitants, a want of numbers in the inhabitants, their proximity to other cities where better entertainments are given, a lack of strangers passing through and stopping in the place, or any other fatal cause prevents its success, a show is the poorest, most harassing, and most unprofitable business that can be engaged in. In penning these words to his uncle, Barnum may have convinced himself to stay focused on his own very successful museum. He applauded Hitchcock, telling him, You are really astonishing me with our fall business. It is indeed glorious, and as you have such really good attractions, I hope it will pay pretty well even after New Year's. However, as the bad weather comes on, you must look out about expenses being too high, 
work in all of Swift's attractions which you can, and thus save laying out too much for other performers. Barnum was also very enthusiastic about the novel idea his employees had thought up to make the American Museum even more of a focal point in its lower Manhattan location, close to the City Hall Park. That's a capital idea of Ewan Swift fixing the Drummond light with reflector on top of the museum. If you can get it so that a man in the park can read a newspaper, let the thing be well started in the newspapers, and it will ring all over the Union, and every visitor to the city will go and see it, and then enter the museum. The old American is bound to do wonders yet, and I shall not be surprised if one of these days we make it clear $40,000 per annum. That's another grand idea, the big sign to light up at night. I hope it will show the American Museum in strong, bold letters. Hitchcock and Swift's brainstorms sound like an early version of Douglas Lee's lighting genius in the 1930s, creating an unforgettable nighttime identity for Times Square. Drummond lights utilized a flame of two gases, oxygen and hydrogen, directed at a cylinder of calcium oxide, quicklime, to create a brilliant white light. Scottish civil engineer Thomas Drummond was seeking to use this type of light for night surveying and to improve beacons in lighthouses, but limelight found many other uses, including lighting theater stages and outdoor events. The first outdoor public event lit by Drummond Lighting took place in 1836 in England. Hitchcock and Swift's idea was a brilliant way to promote the museum in more ways than one, as the American Museum quickly became known for the rooftop illumination. In this way and others, Barnum put the museum's rooftop to profitable use. It served as additional space for attractions such as the aerial garden, and more importantly, as a way to draw attention to the museum from the street, with an exceptionally large American flag and smaller colorful flags mounted around the edge. As we see in this letter, the roof would soon be showcasing a new technology, which was also an attractive novelty, free to all who came to Broadway. In his autobiography, on page 132, Barnum claimed that his powerful Drummond lights were the first ever seen in New York, and they made people talk, and so advertise my museum. On the subject of rooftop views, you may recall from a previous episode that Barnum mentioned his plan to place statues near the edge of the roof. This idea probably preceded the parade of flags, and had repeatedly asked for the measurement of the building so that he could commission statues proportioned to appear life-sized from the ground. Once again, he posed the question to Hitchcock in this letter, noting, When you send me the height of the museum, I'll have some full-length statues prepared for the top. Since we could not find evidence of statues in any images of Barnum's museum, nor were they described as being among the improvements and renovations in the 1850 booklet Barnum's American Museum Illustrated, we do not think that plan was carried out. However, Adrian came across a print from about 1830, showing the American Museum at the time it was operated by John Scudder, Jr., and it shows statues around the roofline. Was it a true depiction? They were not in place when Barnum became the proprietor in December of 1841, but perhaps they had been sold off or were carved of wood, like cigar store figures, and had eventually rotted from New York weather. In any case, the earlier print gives us an idea of what Barnum was hoping to do. 
Far less costly than shipping statues from Europe was resupplying Monsieur Guillaudot, the museum's naturalist and taxidermist, with more glass animal eyes, and this time the addition of eyes for wax figures. The latter would become a main feature at the museum and include likenesses of both famous and infamous individuals and tableau designed to provide moral and religious instruction. I shall ship some bird's eyes, wax figure eyes, etc. tomorrow, and I enclose the bill of bird's and beast's eyes. The wax figure eyes cost three francs per pair, but they are worth five or six francs per pair. I shall also ship the dictionary, French, tomorrow, and a box containing a portion of my other porcelain left here by mistake. No duties I expect to be paid for eyes. Despite the unusually cautious tone of Barnum's letter, there was the inevitable new idea to share with Hitchcock. I have considerable of an idea of opening a picture gallery in New York and allowing museum visitors to visit it for half price, twelve and a half cents. It seems to me that a good picture gallery will pay well there, but I don't know. What do you think? Barnum had already gone so far as to commission copies of two large dramatic paintings while he was in France, See the episode relating to Barnum's intention to ask Monsieur Guillaudot's nephew, an art student in Lyon, to make copies of paintings. When Barnum decided to leave Lyon for a trip to London, he tasked Mr. Sherman with meeting with young Hyacinth Chevalier to inquire about copies. But whether it was Guillaudot's nephew or another artist who painted them is unknown. Whomever it was, Barnum informed Hitchcock, I am getting two magnificent paintings copied here and shall probably at first put them in the museum. Their size is about ten feet square. One represents the deluge, the other Cain and his family after the murder of Abel. The originals are in the Louvre and cost 50,000 francs each. I pay 1,000 francs for each copy, and they are to be so exact that an ordinary person can't tell the difference. They are magnificent. In order to encourage the fine arts, the king allows any painting to be copied and thus the finest paintings and best subjects in the world can be copied at a low figure compared with the original. And I'm half inclined to think that such a collection of pictures as could thus be got for $5,000 would pay remarkably well. But perhaps not. What say you? Talk with some of the editors and other persons of intelligence, and then give me your and their opinion about it, if you please. I expect we will see a return to Barnum's high-spirited enthusiasm once he gets to England, with letters liberally spiced with more business venture ideas and investment risks. Although Barnum told Hitchcock his health had improved, it seems he was still not feeling 100%, but he was confident that a change from French to English cuisine would be restorative, noting, My health is much better, and I trust when I get hold of the porter and roast beef of England be all right again. Clearly, this was the comfort food he was craving. Pancakes and shortcakes and oysters. Intense homesickness is difficult to cope with, especially when it persists over a long period of time and leads to physical ailments. P.T. Barnum's letters from abroad to his closest friends and relatives tell us that he suffered a great deal from homesickness, even while intensely busy with work. Throughout the year of Tom Thumb's tour of France in 1845, 
Barnum was often on his own in his capacity as the advance man to get venues booked and performances scheduled in various towns and cities. Added to the stress of making business arrangements with strangers, whom he often distrusted, he was learning a new language and new customs on the fly, eating unfamiliar foods, and frequently having to travel at night in a cramped and uncomfortable public coach as he went from town to town. All this took a serious toll on Barnum, though he never wavered in his dedication to promoting his business interests both at the American Museum and in Europe. Although staying busy is often recommended as an antidote to homesickness, meaningful personal engagement with others is more effective than busyness, and Barnum had little of that while on tour. Responding to a letter from his wife, Charity, at home in Bridgeport, Barnum seems to lash out at her in his November 30th letter in a way that indicates how painfully he was experiencing homesickness. He wrote, I was most happy to get your letter of October 26th, though I am sorry to see you writing so much about your loneliness. If you are lonely, what do you think of me? I suffer much more from that cause than you possibly can, and I trust in God that it will not long continue so. But I guess it must till spring, for there's no fun in crossing the Atlantic in the winter. However, we may take a sailing vessel, perhaps after New Year's. Though Charity felt lonely and wanted her husband home again, she was not suffering from homesickness, which can render feelings of loneliness on a different order of magnitude and cause serious mental and physical distress. Barnum was dismissive of her attempt to entice him home by mentioning favorite foods, and perhaps he even felt the reminder was a bit unkind. The pancakes and shortcakes and oysters are first-rate, I know, but my dear Charity, such temptations are not necessary to make me feel anxious to get home, for there was never a man more lonesome and homesick poor devil on earth than I am. Still, I persevere and live in hope, and sacrifice my present happiness in the belief that by so doing I shall secure an independence and enhance the happiness of my family and friends. Mindful that his eldest daughter, Caroline, was far from home attending boarding school in Washington, D.C., and perhaps also feeling pangs of homesickness, Barnum asked Charity to write to Caroline and give her my love. You had better send her the Republican Farmer every week, or some other paper. It will be a relief to her to thus get news from home every week. I hope that somebody writes to her as often as once a week. That is necessary, not only to keep her mind easy, but also to learn her how to correspond. I hope that her mistress is a prudent, good woman, and will take every possible care of her. According to psychologists and psychiatrists, homesickness can be experienced in different ways, but generally it falls into one of two categories, anxiety or grief. Based on the clues in Barnum's letters, one would say his case was caused by anxiety, but grief may also have been a factor since he had lost his daughter Frances in the spring of 1844. It appears that homesickness was the cause of the very painful stomach symptoms to which he often referred and for which he had sought advice from French physicians. In late October, he had written to Hitchcock that the French medical rascals say I have fire in my stomach and therefore must not feed it by smoking or drinking wine or tasting vinegar. Stomach ulcers, nausea, vomiting, and loss of appetite are among the physical symptoms that persistent homesickness can lead to, 
as the body responds to excessive mental stress. Barnum also mentioned his loss of weight several times, including in his November 29th letter to Fortis Hitchcock, warning, Tell your wife to be prepared for a grand surprise one of these days, my return, and not to faint if she sees me only the shadow of my former self, mere skin and bone. Initially, Barnum expressed fear that he might die from his stomach ailment, although on other occasions he mentioned to correspondents that his condition was not dangerous. In the November 30th letter to his wife, Barnum reported, My health is very good. But he did not say the same to others, only that it was improving. Certainly, he did not want to give Charity, who was disposed to worry, further cause to worry. Barnum also learned from Charity that five-year-old Helen had given up thinking about him, an anecdote she may have shared to drive home her frustration with her husband's absence. Though it might have stung a bit at first, the story elicited a fatherly response. Dear little Helen, so she thinks I am so far off that there's no use to think of me. Well, I hope I shall get nearer one of these days. At the end of the letter, he added a short note for Helen, whom the family fondly called Paji. My dear little Helen, I want to see you very much, for Mother writes me that you are a very good girl and go to school and learn your book very fast. I am very glad to hear this, for I wish you to beat General Tom Thumb in learning, and I guess you will, but he learns pretty fast and is a very cunning little fellow. He says he wants to see you very much and that he will not fight with you as usual when he sees you. I hope you grow faster than he does, for we weighed him today, and he don't weigh quite so much as he did the first day he left Bridgeport. But he has grown very cunning since that time, and so have you. What shall I bring home for you? Tell mother, and she will write me. Goodbye, my dear Podgy. From your father, P.T. Barnum. On the flip side, Charity had good reason to be fretful about her husband's absence overseas and his inability to commit to a date when he would return. Charity was well along in her pregnancy at that point, nearing the end of six months, and no doubt she wondered if Barnum would be with her when the happy event took place. Baby Pauline would be born March 1, 1846, less than two years after the death of little Francis. However, there is no indication that Barnum had even been told a baby was on the way, either by charity or anyone intimate with the family who might have made mention of the fact. Barnum's comment, I am glad you found the museum looking so well, is curious because charity so infrequently left the house, and during the Victorian era, it was not generally considered appropriate for a pregnant lady to be out in public, at least not when her condition was visible. Still, a lot could be disguised under the capes and full skirts in fashion then. Perhaps Charity had stopped in New York City on her return from taking Caroline to the boarding school in Washington. No more is said in the letter about buying or building a house in Bridgeport, a topic that had been batted back and forth in late summer and early fall. Barnum closed his letter by asking Charity to write by every steamer, give his love to all their friends, and kiss dear little Helen for me. The next day, December 1st, Barnum would start on his journey to England, while General Tom Thumb and his entourage remained in Paris, to follow him in 10 to 12 days. For many reasons, Barnum was anxious to get back to England, perhaps chief among them believing that his health would return to normal with a diet of the more familiar British foods. The agonizing feelings of homesickness, 
going hand-in-hand with his health problems, might also be diminished, and Barnum was craving the company of friends. To that end, he seems to have had another personal reason for wanting to be in London, hinted at in his letter to Mr. Fillingham in London. He hoped the show business agent would find it highly necessary that he, Barnum, return to London quickly to sign the engagements for Tom Thumb's performances. You understand, he noted to friend Phil. This would provide Barnum a legitimate excuse to go to England sooner rather than later, and if partner Sherwood Stratton questioned his motives for the trip, as he had done in October, Barnum could mollify him with proof of need. Reflecting back on two of Barnum's letters, November 1st and November 10th, to London friends Mr. and Mrs. Collins, he had hinted then of his special concern for and desire to see an unnamed guest at their home, a person who had been unwell and who was learning to speak English. This guest may be the person to whom Barnum penned the following brief note on November 29, 1845. My good friend, I leave here on Monday evening next, and shall see you on Wednesday next if nothing happens. I received your letters this morning, for which I am much obliged. As I shall soon have the pleasure of talking with you, there is no need of my writing much today. So, farewell, with best wishes and hoping to visit you, all in good health and spirits, next Wednesday. The content may not seem remarkable, but the large, that is, enthusiastic flourish under the last two words, is striking, along with the absence of his signature. We probably cannot count on discovering who this person was, since Barnum would have no need to write them once he was in London. It is apparent that he wanted to be discreet and use no name in correspondence with or about this person. Whether he feared that someone might infer an inappropriate relationship and then talk seems likely. We, of course, don't know what the nature of the relationship was. If the person was female, as one might suspect based on Barnum's solicitude, Barnum surely would not have wanted Charity to learn of her, as even a friendship with a woman would have raised suspicion and caused hurt and anger, a recipe for disaster while Charity was already feeling abandoned by her husband. We will probably have a lot to keep up with when Barnum and company are all back in England again. We can expect Barnum will tackle business with renewed energy and purpose, his spirits buoyed by enjoying the company of other showmen good friends, and dinners of the roast beef he craved. Homesickness will probably fade to some degree. At least, while staying put in London, he may also find more time to write to Charity and their daughters and other family members. Let's hope he soon learns that he is to be the father of another child and will fix a date for sailing to America. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.